Get ready to fuel your imagination with the AI Agile Guy podcast. Dive into the world of AI and Agile with your host, Snehal Talati, as he demystifies the tech landscape. Fasten your seatbelts and let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of the AI Agile Guy podcast. I'm your host, Snehal Talati. We're on a mission to spark powerful conversations about the intersection of AI and Agile. Today, we have the perfect guest to kick off our series. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Agile2 Academy, an executive level Agile and DevOps advisor and consultant. His insights are guiding a new generation of Agile methodologies, and he's the author of Agile2, the next iteration of Agile. Please join me in welcoming Cliff Berg. Cliff, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Hi, Snehal. Thank you. Awesome. Cliff, welcome to our, it's a pleasure to have you. How are you today? My pleasure. Fantastic. So Cliff, we'll get this interview just started right away. Want to kind of ask you our first question. Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of maybe your your take on, we'll start the question off really heavy on terms of AI. We're in the AI era. Um, and just to talk about kind of where do you see Let's just talk about your background first. Give us, give our audience and listeners about who you are. Uh, but then if you could tie that in into what all of this news that's erupting in the AI space, like what does that mean to you? My background's in, in tech. I started as a nuclear engineer. I studied nuclear physics. <clears throat> and then I went back to school and studied operations research. Um, and then I founded a tech company that grew to about 200 people uh, in the late 90s, uh, 1990s, uh, early 2000s. And uh, that company was very involved with Agile ideas when they came out. And I got very involved with the Agile community. I ended up writing a, a, a book about how to uh, approach high assurance systems, uh, very secure and very reliable systems, but using very Agile approaches because the approaches at that time were very canonical and top-down. Uh, <clears throat> but I felt that business like banks and healthcare and so on, they need high assurance need to be uh, a little bit less uh, top-down. <clears throat> so how do you do that? Uh, and uh, I've stayed involved with the Agile community and uh, watched a lot of the dysfunction develop. Uh, frankly, the Agile community really has a lot of dysfunction in it. Uh, and a few years ago, I, uh, with a colleague, set up a team to examine that and really understand it. And that team developed what we called Agile 2. And we wrote a book about that. Uh, and I'd like to emphasize that Agile 2 is not something I cooked up. And it's not a framework. Uh, it's, it's kind of what we think Agile should have been uh, from the beginning. It's very philosophical. It's very behavioral. Uh, but it's a deep dive. It, it's informed by behavioral psychology, leadership theory, you know, organizational behavior, cognitive science, operations research. It's what we think is the real deal. Um, so uh, the work that I do today, uh, I, I have a company with some partners and we help organizations to be more nimble and more agile. And we never use agile frameworks. We never even mention agile frameworks, frankly, um, <clears throat> because it's irrelevant. Uh, what we use is these, these more, uh, more informed ideas that are grounded in research uh, from behavioral psychology and leadership theory and so on. 
Awesome. Fantastic. No, thanks for sharing that. I, one thing that I, I really uh, was intrigued that you mentioned is the dysfunction, right? So we know there was a lot of, there's you know, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of, a lot of things that have erupted in the agile space, but with AI coming in the forefront now, how does that change uh, the dynamics of how we look at agile today? And, and from based off of your experience, and I know uh, you're an enthusiast in the AI space as well, kind of, what are your, what's your take on yeah, that? Well, so, you know, just a disclaimer, I'm not an expert in AI, but a few years ago, I, I did a deep dive. Um, I, I spent about five years ago, I, I read several textbooks. I worked through all the math, uh, linear algebra and statistics, which I have backgrounds in those anyway. And uh, I built a lot of systems. I took courses too and built systems from scratch, some pretty complex things. Um, and the reason I did that is because I wanted to really understand what it was. You know, I, there was a lot of hype around it, but I wanted to actually uh, get inside and see, you know, see it firsthand. And so that's why I did that. But, you know, that doesn't make me an expert in AI, but I think it did enable me to have perspective on it, on what it really is. And uh, it has informed uh, how I look at organizational agility. We work with companies, uh, actually one company we're working with right now to develop a curriculum uh, for them, a leadership curriculum. <clears throat> they have a very large AI group. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they uh, uh, have certain, um, I just got off a call actually with um, uh, the director of a research institute. We're working with another organization and discussing how to bring AI in there. Um, and in that case, it's uh, very much around the, the you know, we, we talked about actually in that case, uh, there's been success in looking at what's known as the transcriptome or the, the epigenetic um, methylation-based uh, condition of, um, you know, DNA and RNA. So you can see that what, what uh, gene activation is over time and art, artificial intelligence, machine learning is really good for discerning those patterns that evolve over time with large data sets, something that humans just can't do um, unless you spend weeks or months doing a lot of statistics. <clears throat> AI can find the patterns very quickly. So there are a lot of different applications. And uh, there, uh, you know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal not long ago by a venture uh, that interviewed a venture capitalist about how uh, this so-called generative AI, which by the way, Generative AI is not new. It's a general concept. You know, gen, you know, there's pattern recognition and there's generation. <clears throat> so, but lately when we talk about genera generative AI, we're talking about these large language models, which, you know, calling that generative AI is kind of like saying all wheels are cars, um, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, you know, this, this more recent so-called generative AI, uh, large language model generative AI, um, the question is, what can we do with those? We can do things with those that we couldn't do before uh, because, uh, you know, it's really that reinforcement learning has been made to work. And that's what, you know, what's going on there. But with also with these language models, which there's certain architecture and also scaling them up. I, there was a uh, I just was listening to uh, the, uh, an NPR show called 1A and the person being interviewed said, this is not new. You know, we've been doing this for a long. No, I'm sorry. It is new. It is new because it, we haven't built models with 500 billion uh, 
neurons, uh, you know, these are machine type simulated neurons until recently at that scale. And at that scale, be, emergent behavior appears. Um, so it is new. Uh, but anyway, it's changing what we can do. And that affects business in a big way. I really think this is a pivot point. Absolutely. I, I, I loved how you said it's an absolute pivot point. So let's, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So I know, um, you know, taking Agile 2, I, I you know, read the book. Um, we talk about software development. And I know that many people sometimes have the misconception that software development is AI, which clearly it's not. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on we're seeing tools being developed for the developers today, like GitHub Copilot. We're seeing uh, Amazon coming up with their Copilot-like applications. Do you see that happening in the Agile space? What, what's your take on that? Like, how can, with the roles that are out there, why is it that, you know, maybe you have a different view on this, but love to hear your thoughts on, can we use something like a co-pilot pilot for a lot of the agilists that are out there? Uh, you know, that's, uh, to me, that's um, maybe, you know, there actually is a popular blogger who has been challenging uh you know, uh, GTP4 with questions about Scrum, you know, to see if it can be a good Scrum master. Um, you know, to me, that's kind of like, uh, you know, um, you know, it's, it's taking something that's, dif you know, dysfunctional from the start and asking it, can you do better? Well, just don't do the thing that's dysfunctional, you know, shift your focus, you know, um, you know, that, uh, so I don't want to get into why, you know, I, I feel, you know, just to be transparent, I've written a lot about why I feel, why I feel that Scrum is an anti-pattern and has really set back the Agile movement. You know, I was around in the middle of my career when, when the Agile Manifesto was written and, you know, it, it did resonate with me, even though I, I feel that like they missed some really important things, like they missed the most important thing, which is leadership. So the very most important thing of all is missing, you know, and a lot of things they say in the Agile Manifesto aren't quite right. They're close, but, you know, to really read it right, you kind of have to know anyway, you know, and, and a lot, some of the things it prescribes are really outcomes rather than behaviors. Um, but, um, you know, I feel that, you know, when Scrum came out, it really kind of stole the Agile movement and, and, and smashed it. Um, but, um, you know, but, but, you know, the role of Scrum Master, I'm going to translate what you asked. So instead of Scrum Master, I'm going to say leader, you know, because a leader is someone with influence. That's all it means. It's someone who has influence and uh, someone who has authority of some type, they're a manager. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else, you know, and a manager needs to be a good leader to be an effective manager. <clears throat> Not all leaders are managers. You know, um, we're all leaders of ourselves, but leadership is the key. Within a team, you need many different kinds of leadership operating. Whether or not they're designated individuals or not is a whole orthogonal question. But you need certain kinds of leadership happening. You, you need what Peter Drucker used to call the inside person, the outside person, and the person of action. You know, those are different modes of leadership. Servant leadership, for example, is one mode one style of leadership, but it's not enough. You need other things too. You need someone advocating for the, for the team. You need someone kind of generating ideas and not just one person, 
Um, but um, those are different kinds of leadership. So you need a leader. And will AI help leaders? Yes, AI can help leaders. So uh, if you have an AI that can, you can actually have an intelligent conversation with and give you kind of ideas, that's very helpful. And it looks like these so-called generative models, large language models, are getting really good at doing it. You know, we're in the early days. I mean, people have been working around this for a, uh, this for a long time, but it's still early days. This stuff's going to get a lot better. If we're scared now, just wait. Um, you know, yeah. so uh, <laughs> I think it can. But but a better question is, what can you do with this stuff besides like helping yeah. agilists? You know, agilists. You know. Uh, which, and everyone should be an agilist. You know, anyone who's any kind of leader should be an agilist. It just means knowing how to go quickly, but not recklessly. You know, knowing how to make, you know, move things along, be fast, but be smart. You know, that's what agility right. is. And so anyone who has influence or any kind of leadership should be thinking about agility. And um, we should be thinking about what can we do with these new tools because we can do a lot of things that we couldn't do before. Absolutely. No, I, I love the way you put it, right? It's about moving fast, but not recklessly. And, you know, having that concept, I think one of the things that I'm, you know, I've started seeing is, yes, we're using AI, but it seems like many folks still don't really understand how it works. And I know uh, you've written some articles on really associating uh, AI with neural networks, right? And and kind of thinking. And so it always ponders that question to me is like, are we really doing deep thinking or are we actually thinking like AI? So I wanted to take, to hear your thoughts on that, on that statement and, and what you think about I that. I love that because, you know, actually in, in this uh, 1A, I was just listening to, and I've heard, seen several, several people write, you know, comparing AI with, oh, it's just a stochastic parrot. So I'm not worried. Well, you know what? Humans are stochastic parrots. <laughs> That's what we do 99% of the time. And it doesn't mean we're dumb or not thinking. We are. That's how we think. You know, it's, it's completely how animals think. You know, but humans too. And, you know, what Daniel, Daniel Kahneman calls system one thinking. It's, it's mainly a statistical, statistical process. Um, you, you, you fill in the blanks just like the, just like the generative AI. You, someone says something and then you process that and, f and you have to say, respond something and fill in the blanks. And it's the same thing. We're doing what, what these AI systems are doing. You know, the only thing we can do that these AI systems cannot yet do, but they will, mark my word. Um, the only thing we can currently do that they can't do is step back, stop talking, and build a cause and effect model in our head. And then ask the question, you know, simulate the model. Does that, you know, does that predict what I observe? And then, no, it doesn't. Okay, well, how can I adjust the model? And then, what, why doesn't it? So build a model of the model's behavior. Like, what's the, that's the hard part. That's really deep thinking. <clears throat> that's what scientists, theoretical scientists do. They, they try and build a model of the model. Like, what am I missing? What, you know, and, and then they keep adjusting that mental model until it's predictive. 
And then you might write the mental model down. You might describe it. Uh, you might even create a simulation model or something. But you have a, mental, a cause and effect model in your head, and you can simulate it to predict future outcomes. These generative AI systems, that's not how they work. But there are AI systems like that, and you could link them. Um, but, you know, that's, that's deep thinking. Um, and that's, you know, what Daniel Kahneman calls system two thinking, where you really think in your head about cause and effect, as opposed to what we do conversationally, which is, which is the statistical parroting. And it's not mindless or dumb. It's just, it's just how our minds work. So we're not, right. we're not really very different from these systems. Love it. Love how you tied system one and system two into this conversation, Cliff. Um, with that, like, I want to keep going on the question of, you mentioned organizational agility, right? And I think we're, we're seeing that kind of change in dynamics with AI coming at the forefront. Um, and like we said, AI is nothing new, right? It has been there. People have been working on it. To me, it's a design revolution where now folks have access to it. Um, everyone, it's at everyone's fingertips, right? Um, but how does that change in terms of how we collaborate? Um, because like I said, with software developers using a lot of co-pilot like tools, what do you envision, uh, from your perspective for the software engineer to evolve into, uh, yeah. and just to kind of take, well, let me uh, say two things, you know, before I answer your question about where it's going, um, you know, AI has changed a lot. You know, there have been jumps, like technology goes through jumps. It doesn't go like this. It goes boom, 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 boom. You know, there's a breakthrough and then a breakthrough and then a breakthrough. <clears throat> these, these recent systems are a breakthrough. There is substantial increment above things that recently were before. Um, there have been a number of, a large number of breakthroughs in AI. Uh, there was one a few years ago with finally reinforcement learning was made to work. Um, back in the late 2000s, so Jeff Hinton, uh, with his algorithm uh, contrastive divergence, um, you know, enabled, made it possible to train very large, um, uh, you know, with very large data sets. And so the performance didn't plateau as early, would plateau much later. And so you could use very large data sets <clears throat> without overtraining and overfitting. And, um, you know, breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. And so, you know, the, the, today's systems are immensely more powerful than they were even five years ago. Um, and the curve is clear. It's not leveling off. It's very steep. And it, it doesn't show any, we're not, it doesn't appear anywhere near leveling off. It's, it's, there are these S-curves, jump, 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 jump. And that trend of S-curves is still very steep. So based on the data, it looks like AI has a long way to go in terms of getting better. Um, of course, no one can predict the future. But in terms of how does it, you know, what does it look like with today's systems? So 10 years from now, it'll be different. Because <laughs> 10 years from now, these systems will be smarter than us. I'm sorry, but they will be. Um, and, you know, and that's a different question that's off topic. So I'm not going to go there. But um, um, you know, how, how should we use today's systems? 
And yeah, they're co-pilots. So, you know, I, I, what I see, a lot of things have come out and Microsoft has embedded it in, in Microsoft Office tools where instead of creating like a PowerPoint deck, you can say, you know, create me a deck that, dis- that summarizes what happened in yesterday's meeting. And it does. And then you look at that and say, well, you know, that's kind of missing this and I, I don't like this and that. And you, and you tell it and it fixes it. And then, and so, and Copilot is like that. So, where it seems to be going is where it does the work, but you just you, you're the supervisor. You're supervising what it's doing. And so, for programmers, it looks it really looks like it's the end of programming. It really does, you know, because um, you know what you can do is, I mean, you, you still probably need you. Programmers still probably need to look at the code today, maybe not tomorrow, but today and say, uh, that's not quite right. Or run these tests and do this and that. And it does it and it fixes it. And, well, it has to fit in, has to use these microservices. Okay, so it's calling those. And um, it also has to, you know, use this and do the, And then it does that, you know. And so um, you're basically just telling it what to do. And it does it. That looks like the direction that that this is going, um, but you know. So do you, do you think that as as we kind of you know go further, as we said, AI is still kind of developing. Um, we're still learning. Uh, there's a lot to learn in this space, but when it comes from a developer standpoint, what if I, like you said, programming is something that is can be done by AI. We're seeing huge improvements every day, and it's getting better at at uh, debugging code, writing certain methods, even working from you know simple applications. Are you you're able to give it a prompt and and get something and be able to kind of execute that? So I, I loved how you mentioned that developers are going to need to know how to orchestrate a lot of things. Um, so with that, and I don't know if you've heard about, even from, I know your background's heavy in DevOps, um, New Relic kind of released their AI Grok, which is a DevOps observability AI, uh, that can also give you, uh, you know, updates on if, if, if there's a bug, you can kind of chat with your logs to see when the system went down and whatnot to kind of get that information pretty quickly. Uh, but your take on that, like, how does that impact that whole DevOps uh, you know, piece and and where do you see this new, I guess, DevOps engineer, software engineer kind of work in that mix? Um, I know you said they're there to orchestrate, uh, but do you think they need any new skills or new enhancements to make their job more efficient? Well, you know, um, I would like to caution people against, you know, looking at today's tools and then making conclusions. You know, because it's like, you know, when cars came out and became practical, I mean, people were trying to make cars in the late 1800s. But finally, you know, someone made a car that actually you could drive a few miles before it broke down. And, um, you know, it'd be like looking at that and say, oh, you know, it's got this problem, that's problem. So forget it. It'll never be practical. (laughs) You know, in fact, there was an article in in Scientific American, in I think uh, like 1915, that that or 1920, that said cars have reached the pinnacle; they can't get any better. <laughs> and Scientific American, right. like 1915 or something. 
So, okay, cars are now as good as they're ever going to be. This is it. <laughs> well, that was sure right. wrong. You know, and so yeah. I've seen people look at like, you know, these late, these recent AI systems and say, well, it makes up stuff or, um, you know, it, uh, it, it made, it made wrote code that was insecure. Therefore, my conclusion is it's useless. It can never write secure code or it makes up stuff. Therefore, you can never trust it. You have to look forward. You know, these are early day issues. You know, these things are going to be fixed. Um, and, you know, so, you know, what I see is, you know, and I hate to invoke science fiction because science fiction is not trustworthy. It's made up stuff. But it often poses good questions. You know, and once in a while, it describes something that's kind of close to where things are going. And, you know, if you look at, like, science fiction where, like, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of science fiction where people would talk into the computer and it would do stuff. Like, I remember there was an Outer Limits ep episode about that. Um, and I think that's where we're going, where you just you know, tell it what you want and it does it and it takes care of all the details. And so we're supervising. We're, we're making sure that it's doing what we really want, but it's doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, fantastic. I, I love, I love that insight um, in terms of, you know, science fiction, right? Um, there's a lot of things that we see uh, that I, you know, kind of, makes us think right is that is that a possibility and a lot of it is coming to fruition now um so with that i'm going to ask you the latest probably the hottest question that um that i have on the top of my mind based off of yesterday uh apple uh launching their apple vision pro um wanted to know, kind of know what your take is and I, I see this because i see ai and the you know the concept of the mixed reality augmented reality kind of mixed in I think we'll we're start to in 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 my kind of visionary kind of aspect. I think I see those morphing together somehow, right? Um, and now Apple being a huge contender to come and introduce that in our space. What are your thoughts about that? Does that change the dynamics and the future of how we collaborate in a global world and a global economy? Well, you know, I I myself am not a fan of headsets. You know, I I'll never wear a headset. I'm sorry, I won't, you know, because I want to see, I don't want to have my vision blocked, you know, so I'm not going to put, if there were glasses where maybe there were things in the glasses, you know, I might do that if it didn't give me a headache, I might do that, but I'm not going to put something over my face and then just go into a virtual world where I can't see the real world. I wouldn't do that. But, um, you know, th 3D tech displays are coming. Um, there's, for example, there's a company called Lightfield Labs that has developed this incredible 3D, real-time 3D rendering technology. It creates holograms, high resolution, um, in real time. And they've created a oh, massive wow. compute pipeline that's modular where you can assemble these like building blocks to create a display of any size. And it, it, it generates uh, uh, holograms, which, which is basically a, a visual field, um, wave, wave front, in real time. Uh, and um, you don't need to wear anything because it creates it creates what would be there really 
if you the thing were really there. Uh, it synthesizes the the way the electromagnetic field that you actually would see if you were looking at the real thing. <clears throat> so, um, uh, you know, I I think you know we are going to have three D displays, which makes it possible to have a more realistic. Imagine if you had a wall sized three D display. Would you go to the office to have a business conversation with someone? Why would you? You know, if you can see right. someone in, in large 3D and they're on the other side of the world, you know, why would you travel? You, know, I mean, you might travel for family and friends, but for business meetings, it's why bother? You know, so, um, right. you know, that's the future. And I don't think it's 100 years away. I think it's, you know... You know, I mean, this, the technology is there. It just needs to be uh, used and then scaled for cost and so on. So I, I think we're going to have, you know, Alvin Toffler predicted this in the 80s. Um, he predicted that the cost of communication and being able to talk to people remotely will go down and down and down and down and down and down. And then inevitably, people would just stay where they are and they would live in their community and work in their community, but they'd be able to talk to anyone anywhere and be very realistic. Um, so I think that's inexorable. It's in it, you know, resisting that is futile. Um, and I think, you know, the companies that are going to flourish are the ones who know how to use that to their benefit. Um, but, um, you know, I, what, what was your actual question? I've diverted so far from your actual question. I've forgotten. No worries. No worries. The, the, the actual question, I, the reason I asked this question is because, so just to clarify, the oh, Vision, Vision Pro, Pro that they okay. just yeah. Yeah, they announced yesterday actually does give you augmented reality. So you can actually see your physical space. And I think to me, that is a game changing kind of, uh, you know, uh, piece that meta was missing. I've been experimenting myself, but I think where I, the reason I asked this question is, do we see, you know, AI being embedded into those where perhaps we might even have a virtual coach that we can ask questions that have been trained on AI to help us in the yeah, moment? Possibly. I, um, I don't think it's going to be in headsets because I don't think most people are going to put a headset right. on, um, but some will, but I think most people won't bother. Right. Um, I mean, that. But we'll see. Um, but I think we won't need headsets, you know, because display technology is getting better. Um, you know, if you go long enough, you go 30 years from now, we might have displays embedded in our corneas or something. But um, and then after that, we'll have brain implants and then we'll be machines. But uh, so where, yeah. how far in the future do you want to go? Um, but, um, yeah. you know, I, another thing is, you know, these current AI systems right now, they run in data centers because that's what we have. And uh, the, the thing is what most people, you know, but they will be connected to other things. Like, you know, if you look at the extremely agile robots that Boston Dynamics has created that can dance and do backflips and everything, those aren't connected to anything intelligent. You know, you tell them what you want to do and it does it. But um, imagine if you connected that to a high intelligence AI system. You then now have, you know, maybe it's a radio connection. You now have a high intelligence system that has legs. So right. you could basically say, 
go to that construction site, and there are 10 of you, put that building up. And they go at it, and boom, boom, boom. A week later, there's a building there. <clears throat> yeah, that would be something really, really interesting to see. Um, but like with you know anything, uh, anything is possible uh, in in terms of the the world that the, the trajectory that you've mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, right? Um, it's just crazy to even think that, right? Um, so thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that. And I'm sure our listeners will gain a lot of insights, valuable insights. But I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the ethical considerations. So, you know, Agile's all about iterating and improving. And But how do we, to, based off of your insights and your experience, how do we ensure that ethical AI practices are also moving quickly and adapting as we go through this era? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it, you have to look at it from the point of view of evolution, you know, because, because these things, you know, as they become more autonomous, they're agents and um, they have increasing agency and that's when evolution takes over. And so, you know, the ones that will prevail will be the ones that are most effective at getting the, at getting their way and at, you know, uh, increasing their influence. So, um, you know, I, I mean, that's why the, con the containment issue, you know, the control problem is so difficult because it, evolution takes over. Like Jeff Goldblum said, life finds a way, you know, and, uh, you know, um, I think ethically, you know, I, I think we, you know, we, I think the ethical question is really important. I, I think, I think that uh, you know the head of OpenAI and and others are right. I think we do need to regulate this now, because the more it becomes a stream of money, the harder it becomes to regulate it. You have to get the regulation in soon, and you know regulation impedes innovation. Well, in this case, I don't care because this is an existential risk. It really is. Um, you know, people who dismiss it don't really understand or they're not connecting the dots, you know, because there are smart people. There are a lot of smart people who are sounding an alarm, but there are a lot of smart people who say, ah, nothing really to worry about here. It's, it's a statistical parrot. Yeah, well, so's the human brain, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, was That's Hitler a deep thinker? I don't doubt it, but, um, you know, so, you know, statistical parrots can do a lot of harm, especially if, if they have their own agenda. Um, so I, I think, um, and imagine a statistical parrot that can outsmart you, that can do things faster than you and think of things that you couldn't have thought of. <clears throat> AI can already do that. You know, you might argue, well, it's not really smart because of this and that. And people always seem to like raise the bar for what's considered really smart. You know, uh, it used to be the Turing test, you know. And <clears throat> so, um, you know, the fact that GTP, GPT-4 gets a 700 on the math SAT, the U.S. math SAT, which is the 90th percentile. And I have people uh, talking to someone the other day said, well, it's not really smart. <laughs> Well, wait, we used to think that was like almost the definition of being smart. 
And now suddenly, because an right. AI did it, well, that's not really smart because, you know, but um, I think ethically, you know, um, you know, it, it does present a lot of dangers because we're not in direct control. Although humans, when humans are in direct control, we also have problems, you know. So, um, you know, a, you know, another problem is that a lot of times, you know, uh, stereotypes re rep do represent a statistical reality. But, but the thing is, the problem with stereotypes is they don't treat people as individuals. You know, we're all an individual. Like, what if it were true that men are not as good at math as women? <laughs> Statistically, what if that were true? It might be true. If you look at some of the incredible uh, Emily Noether and some of the who made, you know, it's the most impactful mathematical breakthrough of the 20th century was Emily Noether. Um, but, um, you know, it laid a foundation for all of physics. But what if it were true that men statistically are not quite as good as women in math? You know what? It doesn't matter because we're each an individual. We're each and, and right. anyone, you know, and so the, the thing is, if you train an AI, it's just like people, just like people. It's going to have a bias based on what it has observed. And so if you want it to override that bias, which is based on statistical reality, in order to implement policy, whether you want to treat everybody fairly and treat everyone like they might be equal, because they might be, they might be better than equal. They might go against the norm. You have to make that, you have to let the AI know that that's a priority, just like a person, just like a person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you brought the reason I bring this ethics question up is I, I have a link, you know, a LinkedIn post uh, floating around somewhere. But I kind of did this test where I asked um, a image AI image generator, uh, what do future agile coaches look like? And it just came up with four white men, old age. And I said, now give me that image from 2030. I tried to ask it to look into the future and it gave me the same thing again. And that's when it like really hit my head is we really need to be ethically considerate on how we train our data, um, you know, in terms of full representation. And I think it's important that we have this conversation. It is a hard conversation uh, for many, but I think it's a very important conversation, just like Sam Altman and all these people who are pioneering the AI space are saying we need regulations, we need policies um, to kind of really. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing, sharing that insight. Um, so with that, uh, Cliff, I want to ask, what are some tips that you would give, uh, especially with how things are moving uh, and how rapidly they're moving in this space, uh, knowing that we are going to have to change how we work as a collective unit and organizations today, what was 10 years ago is no longer going to be the same way uh, that we work and collaborate and build products, build services for our customers what do you think are, what are some tips that you would offer our listeners in terms of how to stay uh, on top of AI in terms of how we use it to augment the things that we do? What is, what are some skill sets that you think that are really important for us, both from, I, I would say, not just the AI front, but also if you have any insights on, you know, from an ad, like just from agility standpoint, um, what are some of the things that we should yeah. be looking at? 
So, you know, I'll take the agility one first, then the AI one. Uh, you know, for agility, I, the, the biggest thing I would say is um, forget the agile frameworks. Forget the agile frameworks. They don't help. They don't help. Not unless you, like, maybe look at them for, like, some inspiration for some ideas. But forget agile frameworks in terms of, like, we should do it this way. It's counterproductive. You know, um, think for yourself and look to established research. And in, 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 there's so much in, in leadership theory um, and behavioral psychology. You know, look to that. Don't look to these frameworks that, that some, some person cooked up because it's their preferred way of doing things. Um, another thing about agility is forget the whole return the office thing. You know, that's so yesterday. I'm sorry, it's 20th century. The future is global. The future of business and work is global. You know, we, we work with scientists in South Africa and they told us how, you know, the pandemic suddenly changed norms and now they routinely collaborate with people around the world that they didn't used to because now it's normal to have these remote meetings. You know, the future is global, you know, and global means you know, through the screen, I'm sorry, um, or in writing or, uh, you know, and, you know, people who think they can only collaborate in person, they just don't know how to, it's, it's, it's something they need to learn how to be effective. You can lead people who are distributed. You can, I know, you know, we, we do, you know, um, so forget the whole, we have to be in person thing. It's nonsense. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, with regard to AI, I would encourage people to learn what they can about it. Um, you know, you don't have to become an expert. You don't have to get to a point where you could do it yourself necessarily. You know, I mean, there's two different, you know, for someone in the tech field, there are two different, different levels of AI expertise. One is like, you know, putting pieces together that are already there, you know, models that exist using them. So like a lot of people are using GPT-4 and so on, uh, using that. So you don't have to be an expert in the AI to do that. Um, people who build their own models, that's a whole different thing. And that's a whole level of AI that, you know, if you want to do that, then you're going to basically work in a laboratory, <laughs> you know. And, and so, uh, you know, the people who build, build GPT-4, that's what they do. You know, they're, they're mathematicians for the most part. They're not programmers. Um, so I, right. I would encourage people to learn, to learn as much as they can about it and um, think about, you know, what it means in terms of what you can now do. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Cliff, for sharing those insights. Uh, because it's really important for us to understand what skill sets we need to refine. And, it, it, you know, Agile is all about continuously learning. And like we said in the beginning of the talk, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's more than just a mindset. It's, it's how do we get faster results but not driving things recklessly? And how do we adapt at this pace? And in order for us to adapt, we have to keep continuously learning uh, on on different things as new emerging technologies might erupt, right? Today it's AI, tomorrow it might be something else. Um, so 
With that, Cliff, do you have any final words for our listeners uh, before we conclude our podcast? Yeah, I guess there's, there is and one thing I'd like to us. point out that that's kind of something that people don't understand about AI is that they think it's programming. Um, it's not. AI is not programming. It, it's, it's, you know, uh, today's AI models run in data centers because that's the tool we have. But the things that are right. running in data centers are simulations of, of neural networks. They're simulations. What we real want, really want is the real neural network, which is not programmed. It's not programmed any more than the brain is. And so real neural networks don't run code. There's no code. They're neurons. And uh, there are real neural networks. Uh, neuromorphic chips are, are silicon-based neurons, not always silicon, actually, um, on chips, and can be connected together. And they use thousands of times less power, and they're faster. <clears throat> and that's what the future is. Um, the, the data center approach is very flexible and people are using it because they can develop quickly and scale that up. But once this stuff, once these models become kind of solidified, uh, people are going to try to make them work better, and they're going to put them on neuromorphic chips. And you know, neuromorphic chips you can have in your car, and you know, instead of running the battery down of your car to run this big computer. You could have a neuromorphic chips that use 10,000 times less power and it won't affect your driving range at all and have the same capability. Um, so AI is not about programming. It has nothing to do with the computing field. It's AI did not come out of IT. It's not a, a derivative of, of computing. It's a whole different thing. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, we really have, we're really shifting from the digital age to the AI age. We're on the threshold of leaving digital behind. Um, this is a, a, a pivot point. Um, AI is not digital. 100% agree. AI is not digital. Um, thank you so much, Cliff, for being part of our very first AI and Agile podcast series, first episode. So glad to have you on board. Uh, great insights. Always a pleasure talking with you. For those of you who are listening, if you guys want to uh, learn more about Cliff, our guest, uh, visit his LinkedIn page. Uh, again, can't thank you enough uh, for kickstarting our podcast and being our first guest. Uh, for those of you who are listening, if you found this episode useful, Subscribe to all our podcast platforms. We'll be bringing guests, distinguished guests, to talk about AI and Agile one episode at a time. Thanks again, Cliff. The pleasure was mine. Take care. Signing off. Thank you, Sneha. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today's thrilling journey on the AI Agile Guy podcast. Sneha will be back with more exciting insights into AI and Agile. Until then, keep innovating, stay agile, and see you next time.